came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. And today is Thursday the 29th of March 2018. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today our feature interview is with Laura Dreesen who is at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics and is a PhD candidate at the University of Manchester. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. And then we'll have a quick news roundup. But first we cross over 10 time zones to speak with Laura in the UK. Hello, Laura. Hi, Brendan, how are you? Today we are speaking with Laura Dreesen, who is an astrophysicist and PhD candidate at Manchester University, who is aiming to pinpoint the sources of the mysterious FRBs, fast radio bursts. So tell us, where did you grow up, Laura? And please tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. And did you have dark skies in your backyard? So I grew up in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne, kind of around the Ringwood, Croydon area, if anybody's from that region. And for me, I don't remember a time where I wasn't interested in space. I've just always absolutely loved it. I remember in primary school, they let us choose the topic of our assignment. And I chose Pluto, of course, because it was my favorite planet. And now it's just kind of my favorite solar system object. Apparently, when I was a kid, my library brought a transportable planetarium, one of those little inflatable ones. And when I was about four, I went into that. And then when I came out, that was it. I was just so excited and thought it was the best thing ever. And there wasn't really no going back from there. I've just loved it ever since. But it wasn't actually until I was 17 that I realized that astronomy was a career rather than just something, you know, that I might do on the side for the rest of my life, something that I'm a bit interested in. I went to a science camp and saw some astronomers give talks. And that was when I realized that you could actually do this for the whole rest of your life, which was really exciting. But at night near where I live, yeah, it was pretty dark actually, because I live way out in the outer eastern suburbs. But to be honest, I'm not really one of those astronomers that can look up in the sky and tell you which constellation is which. I can sort of point out maybe one or two. I think I've got Orion pretty down pat and the Southern Cross. But otherwise, not so much. I did get a small telescope when I was a kid, and I loved that, being able to see the rings of Saturn. And I always love looking at the beauty of space, but really I'm interested in things that we can't see with our eyes. Fantastic, and we'll be getting on to your specialty soon. (laughs) 
So let's go back to your early ambitions, Laura. Say when you were in primary school, can you tell us about those ambitions and did they change? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess in primary school, I had sort of some of the the usual aspirations. I think the first thing I remember wanting to be was an air hostess because they get to travel a lot. Um, But otherwise, I don't really remember in primary school having a particular goal. I just really loved science and maths. And in high school, the same. I was a bit, because I didn't realize that you could do science as a career, I was a bit torn, actually, because I knew that I loved space and that sort of going to careers meetings with your teachers, they said, oh, you know, you're a girl who likes science, so maybe you should be a medical doctor. But I didn't really want to. I sort of thought, oh, you know, that would be a good career, but it's not perfect. And then I thought maybe an engineer, but because I just had no idea that you could do what I do now. I didn't really know, but as soon as I knew, then that was what I wanted to be straight away. Excellent. And I think you're also proving that you get to travel a lot as an astrophysicist. That's true. That is true. So I sort of got a little bit of that childhood dream going on as well. Excellent. Thanks, Laura. Now, as you were doing your VCE certificate to graduate from high school, you attended the Emeritus Professor Harry Messel International Science School and the National Youth Science Forum. And your final marks were high enough to get you into your preferred course in any university you wanted. So where did you go and why did you choose that one? Well, it's a bit tricky, I guess. At that same time, Melbourne University had just recently moved across to their new model. So they they used to have a similar course structure, I suppose, to most other universities in Victoria and, and in Australia. But then they changed to their sort of American style model. And to be honest, at that time, that kind of turned me off Melbourne University a little bit, even though my older sister had attended there and done very well. And she's a diplomat now, so that's a very good university too. But as far as science goes, Monash University had really set itself up as excellent, especially for sort of engineering, physics, that kind of thing. They just had a really good reputation for excellent science. And unlike somewhere like Melbourne University, they had this special course for high achieving science students, the Science Scholars Program. And that was just a bit of, I suppose, special attention. So before I even chose my subject, I got to meet with a professor to discuss subject options and and where I wanted to go. And there was a camp for the Science Scholars students and the Advanced Science with Honours students before university started. So it just had that little bit extra, whereas a lot of other universities weren't really offering special programs like that for science. So for me, Monash University just had had that little bit more that they offered to high-achieving science students. And I think they have similar courses still, but they have changed them a little bit over the years. That sounds great. So your first undergraduate degree in astronomy and astrophysics started off as a standard tertiary course, but then in year two you did an exchange to the University of Warwick. Can you tell us about that one? Yes. Yeah, so when I started at Monash University, I really thought that I was just going to go on a pretty standard academic path, that I was going to do my undergraduate and then honours and then a PhD, probably all at Monash University, just go straight through. And as you now know, and I'm sure we'll get into, that's not really how it turned out, which I'm not really sad about. But that sort of all started, I suppose, with the Professor Harry Messel International Science School. And then the next step of it was going on exchange. 
the only real reason that I went on exchange, I suppose, is because my older sister had gone on exchange and, and loved it. And I had the opportunity to, as a science student, go on exchange. And my parents actually just kind of said to me, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? You have the opportunity. The university provides some funding for it. You can get a, an overseas help loan added to your HEX help debt. So why not do it? I actually applied to King's College University and to go on exchange there. And I did get into that, but it was actually at a time when Monash University was establishing a really close connection with the University of Warwick. And so they said, how about a little bit extra money and go to Warwick instead? And I really, really loved it. It was extremely tough. I got the, the lowest grades I've ever got in pretty much my academic career because unlike Monash University, instead of having applied mathematics, they really focus on pure mathematics. And I had never done pure mathematics before. And I went into second year pure mathematics there and I just struggled. <laughs> so it was a great, great experience and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. And actually when I came back, I was hired by Monash Abroad, which is the Monash Exchange and International Student Office. And I had to add an extra semester onto my university undergraduate degree. So it took me three and a half years instead of three years because of the mismatch in these courses. I was the first Monash student to go to Warwick for exchange in science. So there was a bit of a mismatch between the courses, which we didn't know in advance. But probably before I went, I would have been horrified to have been told that it would add an extra semester onto my degree because I was really set on this straight path through university. But then when I actually did it, that's probably where I really learned that flexibility where you can have amazing experiences and maybe it'll set you back a little bit, but it's worth it. It sounds like you love a challenge. Yeah. So after your graduation from Monash, you moved to the University of Amsterdam and the Anton Panacook Institute to do your master's degree. Tell us about that move, please. Yeah, so actually, so I already said that my undergrad took three and a half years. So at the getting towards the end of my third year, one of my professors in a lecture just kind of flashed up a slide on the screen at the end of the class saying, oh, you could do a summer studentship at any of these places if you want. And that kind of sort of just set something going in my brain. And I thought, oh, a summer studentship. I didn't know those existed. So at the end of my third year, I did a summer studentship at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, imaging the Galactic Centre with the MWA, the Murchison Widefield Array, and the very large array, the VLA. And while I was there doing that 10-week summer studentship, I was enjoying it so much that I was looking for another summer studentship while I was still doing the summer studentship in Perth. So at the end of my three and a half years of undergraduate study, I did another summer studentship at Astron, which is the Netherlands uh, Radio Astronomy Institute. And that was another 10-week summer studentship, and I worked on scattering of the crab pulsar. And... That was so Perth sort of started it. And then while I was at Astron, I realized that I didn't have to do this really straight path through university. I didn't have to just do undergraduate honors and PhD, which is an absolutely fine way to do it. But I thought for me, then maybe, you know, why not head overseas and do something there? So I started applying around then to do my master's overseas. So it actually meant that I had to take a year off in between my undergraduate and master's just because of the way that the the years are kind of offset with the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere. And I got a full scholarship to the University of Amsterdam 
and it's a two-year program in a master's is a two-year program in the Netherlands so the first year is all coursework and the second year is research and so in the second year I did some research with the low frequency array which is a really big radio telescope well big it's made up of lots and lots of little tiny antennas but it's spread out all across Europe and I made some images of the galactic plane there so it was a really sort of winding route to it but I'm so glad that I ended up there. Fantastic. What a great academic and research journey to this point. <laughs> so right now you're a PhD candidate at the University of Manchester. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so I just started in September and I'm working on uh, localising fast radio bursts with the Meerkat telescope in South Africa. So I'm not sure if your listeners know what a fast radio burst is. They wow. have an idea of that. I think we should have a quick recap of what a FRB is, yes. No worries. So a fast radio burst is a flash of really bright radio light. So it just goes flash, usually lasting a few milliseconds, and then that's it. it's gone. So it's just a really, really bright flash, and it's gone. But from some of its properties, we can find out new things. For example, we already know that these FRBs, we expect them to come from really, really far away. So they're not from our galaxy, they're from outside of our galaxy. But usually when we're looking for these fast radio bursts, we're using telescopes that are sort of like one pixel rather than your camera and your phone, which has hundreds to thousands of pixels, depending on what kind of phone you've got. Usually radio telescopes are sort of one pixel or a couple of pixels. And that means that we're seeing a flash, but it could come from anywhere, say, in the area of the moon. So if you look up at the moon, it doesn't look that huge, but... The Hubble Ultra Deep Field, which is an observation using Hubble, is the size of one tiny speck on the moon, and there's thousands of galaxies inside that area. So if you look inside an area the size of the moon on the sky, there's just thousands upon thousands of galaxies. So if you see a bright flash coming from somewhere in the size of the moon on the sky, then you just don't really know where it's coming from. So my job is to image that that pixel so rather than just having one pixel basically we're going to fill it up with pixels so that we can actually localize where fast radio bursts are coming from and because we don't know what fast radio bursts are we have a few theories that we kind of like a bit better than others and some people like other theories better than others but if we can find out where they're coming from if they're coming from say a particular type of galaxy or a few different types of galaxy or if they're coming from hopefully even within a galaxy, we can localize whether it's coming from maybe a star forming region inside a galaxy. Then that gives us a huge amount of information about fast radio bursts and it'll definitely give us a few hints on what they are. That's fantastic, Laura. So you're working with a team to pinpoint FRBs. Now you're using Meerkat and what specialist software are you using to analyze your Meerkat data? And is it difficult for you and your team to get time on the Meerkat Array? Oh, well, that's an excellent question. So the team that I'm working with, it's called Meertrap, which is uh, Meer means more in Afrikaans because the Meerkat telescope is in South Africa. And Trap stands for transients and pulsars. So I'm in the more transients and pulsars team. And we're actually a commensal survey. So what that means is that whenever Meerkat is observing, someone's using it to say look at galaxies or make images we're also observing at the same time and they won't even notice 
So we're sort of piggybacking on all observations. So for us, it's we don't ever have to get time per se. We're always looking. So every time Meerkat is being used, we're also using it, which is a, something sort of unique to radio astronomy or almost unique to radio astronomy because there's not too many systems where you can both be using the data but in different ways. And it does, it involves specialised hardware. So the Meertrap team is actually going to have their own computer cluster and things like that plugged into the Meerkat telescope. And the team is working on very specialised software to pipe off that data, I suppose, and to analyse it really quickly because we just can't keep all of the data because a radio telescope, especially a really big one, produces such high data volumes that you just can't keep it. So we're sort of looking at a bit of a loop. So for a certain time, we keep that, we run through a loop of data and look at it. And if we see a flash, then we save that data. And then I make the images that we can localize it. Or I'll actually have written some software to do it rather than having to do it every time, because hopefully we'll see a few transient sources. And then we do analysis on it. So we only keep it if we actually see something, because we just can't afford the space to save all the data. But we're definitely making very specialised equipment and software. I'm not particularly a software writer, but uh, as an astronomer, you do end up doing a lot of programming. And I thought I would absolutely hate it, but it turns out that programming is pretty good. <laughs> ah, very good. What languages are you using? So I use only Python, pretty much, and a little bit of Bash just to work in the terminal. But I use the Python programming language, which is really common for astronomy. But a lot of our team use other languages like C++ is particularly good and efficient for writing software and things like that. So I'm much less on the software engineering side of things, but there are quite a few languages that are popular in astronomy, but the main one is Python, sort of used as a tool to do science rather than as a software engineering program. Okay, so let's look at what success looks like for your team, Laura. Let's say you do observe a particular place in space where an FRB is coming from. Do you immediately alert optical astronomers so that they can look in that place and see if there's an optical counterpart to the FRB? Well, that's even more exciting with this Meerkat telescope. So there's actually something called the Meerlicht telescope, which means more light. And it's an optical telescope that has a field of view that, is the, that covers the Meerkat field of view. And it's actually a robotic telescope, so it's fully robotic. And it's always pointing in the same direction as the Meerkat telescope. So we don't actually need to ask anybody else for any data because we've got it already. So the Meerlicht telescope will actually, and especially if, say, the telescope's been pointing in a particular direction for, uh, you know, say, an hour already, and then we see one of these flashes, then we'll also have that hour's worth of data from the Meerlicht optical telescope. So not only can we get immediate optical observations, but we can actually, if, if we're lucky, well, probably more often than not, we can get a little bit before the flash actually went off, which is really exciting because we're not really sure if maybe, say, for a fast radio burst, the radio light might be what comes last. But the radio is so far the only way that we can detect these things. So we would never know unless we have sort of data coming from the past whether maybe there is an optical burst accompanying these things. Wow. So it's really exciting to have it at an optical telescope that's always looking in the same place as the Meerkat telescope. That's just sensational. Now, let's shift gears a little bit. And can you tell us about your connection to the iconic Jodrell Bank facility? 
<laughs> yeah, sure. So I, I, I guess all pulsar astronomers here at the JBCA at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, which is based at the University of Manchester in Manchester, have a bit of a connection with the Jodrell Bank Observatory because every Tuesday we catch a bus and we work from there instead of at the university. So we get to work right next door to the big level telescope. But I actually haven't really used any of the, the observations from the Lovell Telescope or anything like that, and I don't actually work with the Lovell Telescope, though I might actually in the near future be looking at a bit of Lovell data. But we're pretty lucky, I guess, that we get to visit the observatory every week and you, you kind of do feel a bit more connected with the, the iconic and possibly in the future World Heritage listed site, which is really nice. It's a, it's a really nice part of working in the Pulsar group here at Jodrell. Awesome, Laura. Now, you've also done a huge amount of astronomy outreach, and what's been your favourite outreach activity, and why is outreach so important to you and other scientists? Hmm, That's a tricky one. So possibly my favourite in general, I really like talking to younger kids, not not too young for Australian listeners, say grade three or four or five or six kids because they're just so keen and enthusiastic where you find sometimes you talk to high school students and they've learnt that maybe there is such thing as a stupid question so they get a bit shy about asking questions whereas the younger kids just are so enthusiastic that they'll put up their hand just to tell you how they watched a tv show on space rather than actually asking a question and they're just so keen and enthusiastic but I also really enjoy talking to adults about science because I think sometimes people think you know kids they, they love space and it's cool but I think people forget that adults also love space <laughs> as well and every time I give a talk I get a question that maybe I've never thought of before or someone will have an idea that is just a, a bit different and exciting so I really enjoy giving talks and I really enjoy uh, interacting with people about science but I think for me outreach is important for a few different reasons. I think, especially because I didn't know until I was 17 that you could be an astronomer, I kind of thought, how did this happen? Because <laughs> my school did have people come and talk to, about science to us, but they were usually chemists or people from CSIRO doing little outreach activities. And I just was so surprised that now, in hindsight, that I never, it never really occurred to me to be an astronomer. So. I feel that maybe if I give a few more talks and a few more students will know that science is a clear pathway, they want to do astronomy or some other type of science. And also, as a woman in science, I think it's important for me to give a talk because maybe if as a kid I'd seen someone like me in science, that would have meant set me on the path a little bit earlier. But I think for scientists in general, it's important because a lot of our funding comes from the government and from taxpayers. And I think that the least we can do is share a little bit of our passion and enthusiasm with the general public and with students just to give back and let people know what we're actually doing with their their money, I suppose you could say. <laughs> but a lot of universities as well are funding us and things like that. So I think it's it's really great to just be able to give back a little bit, I suppose. And also just to share what we're doing because a lot of people just have no idea. You know, they might see in the news that I think recently an amateur astronomer detected a supernova explosion as it was happening, which is really exciting. But there's so much more happening in astronomy that's maybe not seen a lot by the public. So I think it's great to just let people know what's going on. Exactly. And it's very exciting times. Now, Laura, the mic is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave 
about the challenges we face in science, education, equity, outreach, our quest for knowledge or space. It's all yours. Hmm, I probably should have thought of this one in advance, but that's okay. I think I have an idea. There's a couple of things that sort of get on my nerves a little bit. All through university, I was a maths and physics tutor for high school students. Um, and something that really struck me then and still now and in, in all the countries I've lived, there's somehow this certain pride that people take in not being able to do maths, which really gets to me, and not being able to do physics which is really frustrating for a lot of reasons. But it just, I mean, if you can't do English, you don't brag about not being able to study English or know history. But for some reason, maths has got this weird vibe or reputation going on. And I think that even it's important to remember, that even if you don't like maths, and especially for students, maths is important, not just if you're going to do maths for the rest of your life and a lot of the people will say things like oh I'm never going to use this again why am I ever going to need algebra and sometimes that's totally true but a lot of the time it's about the skills that you actually learn there's a lot of things that you know you're not going to get unless you do it over and over again just like we learn in maths class when you practice similar or different questions over and over again and then suddenly you'll have a light bulb moment and that applies in the future just in people's careers and in life and also this idea that you can do this little thing over and over again you, you know you might learn how to solve a quadratic equation but then you get asked a worded problem and you suddenly have to take that little bit of knowledge that you practiced over and over again and apply it to a much bigger problem and again rather than just thinking about that as oh, I don't need this quadratic formula ever again ever again maybe people should instead be thinking about oh, look, I learned a skill. I can take these little pieces that I learned over the last few weeks and I can actually apply them to a bigger question. And that's something that not just scientists think about, but just people in almost any career have to take little things that they've learned and apply them to something bigger. So I think instead of taking an attitude towards maths of I'm never going to use this formula again, I'm never going to need quadratics, thinking about the skills that you actually learn in maths class rather than the actual maths is important. Whether you really love maths or not and whether you could do it or not, it's those skills that are important. Just like in every other class, history isn't about memorizing dates. It's about learning about the history and about people and about your country or other people's countries. So and I think people don't really think about maths in the same way, whereas I think that's something that would be nice to change. Yeah, that's so true. So right now, we warmly invite our listeners to follow at AstroLauraD on Twitter and Facebook and check out her blog at AstroLaura.com. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future, Laura? Well, I guess hopefully soon I'll have a couple of papers out, but uh, who knows when that'll happen because in astronomy it tends to be, you know, soon rather than an exact date. So hopefully in the near future, I'll have a couple of papers out about supernova remnants in our galaxy uh, and about the crab pulsar. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Laura Dreesen, a wonderful PhD candidate and astrophysicist who we hope will pinpoint the sources of FRBs for all the world to see. Awesome. Thanks, Brendan. And I hope to hear more of your podcasts in the future. Okay. See you, Laura. Yeah, bye. 
And now we cross over to Adelaide to speak with our regular presenter, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Hey, what's up, Doc? Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We had some rain yesterday. Oh, more than a couple of drops? Well, seven millimetres. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. It's currently raining at the moment. It's just enough to dampen the concrete for a few moments and then it goes away. Yeah, so, settle the as, dust. As Peter was saying, it's not enough to take the edge off the fire season. No, not quite. We had big thunderstorms last night. The lightning did start a local fire, but the boys jumped on it pretty quickly. Yeah, that's really good. Peter was on call in the actual office on Saturday because of the uh, fire risk. Luckily, there were no big fires and, and she got back okay. Very good, Ian. Now, before I ask you what's up in the sky this week, I just went and had a look at your Astroblog website. I noticed that you mentioned that there's a Nova happening in Carina and I also know that Ida Carinae is supposed to go to a very big supernova at some time in our near future, which in astronomical terms is maybe in the next million years. Is this nova anywhere near Ida Carinae? It is in fact near Ida Carina, but it's slightly away from it. It's actually closer to the southern Pleiades. So if you hop up from Eta Carina, it's to the south polewards Eta Carina. Okay, and can one nearby nova trigger another nova in the vicinity? If it's close enough, yes. The basic thing about a nova is unlike a supernova. Supernovas are where giant unstable stars are so large that when um, their helium burden stage finishes, they start to collapse inwards and then you get a whole range of weird fusion reactions occurring and you get a massive explosion which blows the outer layers off. Actual astrophysicists will notice I've left an enormous amount of the actual fusion burning systems out of this. But in ANOVA, what happens is that you've got a star which has evolved into a, a white dwarf or a neutron star uh, level and you, with the companion star, which dumping material onto onto it, and so you get this build-up of material from the other star until it gets uh, big enough to spontaneously fuse, and you get this massive flash, which is a nova. So, in theory, two adjacent stars could flash each other into novas, provided, of course, there's another source of, of um, material, but they have to be fairly close. Uh, in the case of Eta Carina. It's so far away from this nova that there's no possible influence. Okay. So we'll still keep an eye on it, Ian. Thanks very much for that. It's currently at magnitude 6.8 and holding, and so it's well worth observing uh, for those of us in the Southern Hemisphere who actually have clear skies. Fantastic. Well, we're not going to get those in the near future, but sooner or later, yes, we will have clear skies. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Ian, can you tell us 
What's up in the sky this week? Multiple things are up in the sky this week. Let's take it from the early evening until the early morning. Those of you who've been following Venus will have noticed it's continuing to climb higher and higher into the twilight skies and becoming much easier to see. Sadly, in the next fortnight, Venus is just uh, blowing by itself and won't have the crescent moon close to it as it did earlier this week, where we could have seen a beautiful juxtaposition of the crescent moon and Venus. But Venus is now sufficiently high above the horizon that it's easily seen about 15 minutes after sunset and is very easy to see 30 minutes after sunset. It's still a good idea if you've got a quite level horizon without any trees getting in the way because it's still quite low, but it's getting a a whole lot better to see and soon will come to dominate the evening sky. Very good. Now, if we move further up, we're going to see gracing the uh, late evening skies. Jupiter is now rising earlier and earlier and can now be seen quite easily in the late evening. Jupiter will be visited by the waning moon on the 3rd, so it'll be very easy to identify. Just look for the moon, and uh, Jupiter is the bright object very close to it. Jupiter's moons are, again, putting on an excellent display in binoculars or small telescopes. We've got a number of uh, good Jupiter moon events coming up where the moons either go into eclipse or cross the face of uh, Jupiter with or without their shadows. And in some cases, while they're not uh, actually uh, crossing the face of Jupiter, the uh, arrangement of the moons uh, will look quite beautiful. So there's plenty to see uh, with Jupiter's moons over the coming weeks. Fantastic. If we travel on into the uh, morning skies, Jupiter is still uh, readily seen in, in the morning skies low above the western horizon. And then if you look towards the north, uh, you'll, for us in the southern hemisphere, for you in the northern hemisphere, you'll be looking south, you'll see just under the, the teapot of Sagittarius, you'll see Mars and Saturn. Now, we've been watching Mars and Saturn for some time now and watching them get closer and closer. So in this fortnight, we will see Mars and Saturn be, uh, come together at their closest. And Mars and Saturn will be closest on the 2nd of April. Now, sadly, they're about one degree apart. Yep. So we need a wide field uh, telescope objective or a pair of binoculars to see them. So they're, they're about a finger with So they'll look very nice close together with the unaided eye. They'll look very nice together with binoculars. Also, remember, around that area is a lot of interesting clusters uh, well worth uh, scanning about. And you'll need a wide-field telescope eyepiece to fit them both together. So Saturn will look sort of vaguely uh, elliptical and elongated. You might be just be able to see the uh, gap in the rings, and Mars will just be uh, a, a bright um, disk. So you won't be able to get them both into the same field of view without making elaborate mosaics. You won't see much detail in them. But there's an interloper. Interloper is the globular cluster M22. Now, we've been watching Saturn edge slowly towards M22, and now it's starting to edge slowly away from the globular cluster M22. It's quite a nice globular cluster. It's really easy to see in binoculars, and in a dark sky site, you can see a faint fuzzy dot. 
Now, on the same night that Saturn and Mars are at their closest on the second, Mars is also closest to the globular cluster M22. Yep. And this will be quite spectacular in even medium telescope eyepieces. So in a, a medium power telescope eyepiece, you'll be able to see Mars and most of the globular cluster M22 together. Um, so with astrophotography, again, you're going to have to be a, uh, a bit judicious. Mars is very, very bright compared to the uh, much fainter globular cluster, even though for a deep sky object it's quite bright. So you may have to play around with exposures a bit to get them closed enough, while Mars is not overexposed. But you might be able to get a little bit of detail in Mars. It will certainly be a very obvious disk in telescope eyepieces, and, uh, and the globular cluster will look very, very, very nice. So it's worth playing around, maybe making, again, as I recommended a little while ago, making multiple exposures where you do a, a long exposure for M22 and then a short exposure for Mars, and then you have to assemble the, the separate images to uh, get the best view. Again, when you're doing this, please tell people what you've done so they're not, uh, they, don't, they don't think it's, a, it's a, exactly how you saw it for, through the eyepiece. But it, it's kind of really nice. Very good, Ian. So do astrophotographers use a whole range of photo software to do that, or do they just use Photoshop to merge their different exposures? They use a range of them. Photoshop's uh, probably the best-known one. Um, I use a freeware piece of software called Begin, yep. which has very similar features to Photoshop. It's just it's sufficiently different, so you need to play around a bit with it. There's also PixInsight, which is uh, very useful, and there's also Maxon VL, which is uh, a, a, an astrophotographer's CCD camera imaging software. So people can often do pre-processing in Maxon VL or uh, PixInsight, and then use Photoshop for some final tweaking later on. So there's a range of different softwares that you can use. You can also use things like Deep Sky Stacker. When you're doing astrophotography, you have a, a, there's a, a number of different approaches. One of, the, one of the things, of course, that has revolutionised astrophotography is the ability to take multiple images with CCD cams and then to be able to stack them and bring out details which you would not get by just taking a single long exposure. So you, you use things like Deep Sky Stacker and similar software. Uh, there's a, one stacker for stars and there's one stacker for planets because the issues are slightly different. And then once you've got you've stacked your images to your desire, then you can take it into another piece of software such as PixInsight and uh, do some um, uh, more editing there. Mosaic overlaying is probably once you've got your, your individual shots um, tweaked to your satisfaction, then you probably do the mosaic in, in something like Photoshop. And the good news for anyone that's starting out doing astrophotography and imaging is that there's, no matter what software you're using, there's so many great free tutorials on YouTube that you can become quite proficient very easily. Now, while we're talking about Mars, Ian, there's probably two things we should mention. 
One is that it is getting particularly bright this year and you might be able to quickly update us on that, on its brightness. And the other thing is I hear it was rediscovered again. Oh, well, let's do that one first. It was, uh, it was quite amusing. Uh, there was a, uh, an astronomical telegram was uh, circulated saying that there'd been a bright uh, nova discovered near the lagoon, lagoon, lagoon Nebula. And then about very shortly thereafter came the second uh, uh, telegram saying, sorry, that's Mars, which only, <laughs> goes, which only goes to show even experienced uh, astronomers can have a senior moment. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, completely was, whoa, there's something bright there. I haven't seen it there before. Yeah, it's Mars. Indeed. And also, and it's very good for everybody whether you're professional amateurs, to sometimes wander out and look at the sky <laughs> rather, rather than relying on your automated software. Uh, but it was a very uh, it was a, uh, amusing uh, incident, and everyone saw the humour. Uh, and indeed, uh, the astronomer in question was a, uh, awarded a um, certificate from uh, one of the astronomical groups for the discovery of Mars. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was quite... Uh, quite amusing and humble pie is an important part of everyone's diet very much so look every astronomer amateur and professional will have the story of when they've discovered some well-known object and got overly excited and then only just realized that they've they've found something that's well known and go oh no <laughs> But, yeah, it, it can happen to everyone, but it was a very amusing moment. At the moment, Mars is quite obvious, uh, and it will only get brighter because this year is the best opposition since the famous 2003 opposition. And, of course, we can look forward to, again, in August, another series of emails saying that Mars will be as big as the moon. No, <laughs> it won't be. And it's always come, because it always comes in August because that's when it was in 2003, every single you know, freaking year. Uh, even, a bit frustrating. But anyway, but it's going to be the brightest it's been since 2003. This is a, a very good opposition where Mars is at um, perihelion and Earth is at aphelion. Mars is closest to Earth because Earth's furthest from the Sun and Mars is closest to the Sun. So Mars will be uh, a very good angular diameter and very bright. Although for us, with mere mortal eyes, uh, the difference in brightness between Mars at opposition uh, last year and Mars at opposition this year will not be particularly noticeable. But yep. uh, for those of us with telescopes, Mars will be quite big in telescopes and we'll have an excellent opportunity to see the, uh, the details of Mars. Picking up polar caps, the markings, it should be uh, much easier for amateurs this year. And given the evolution of CCD cameras and software since 2003, we could expect to see some really fantastic images of Mars coming out. Indeed, we've already begun to see some fantastic images coming out from the astronomical community. Of course, because Mars is seen as its best around about 5 o'clock in the morning, at the moment I'm going to wait a couple <laughs> of weeks before I begin trying to image Mars. Of course, because 
I now live in a Mediterranean climate. We have a nice dry summer and a very wet winter, which means you get a lot of cloud and a bit of drizzle. So I'm, I'm not predicting that I'm going to get uh, very good images this year. I'm sure you'll get a break, Ian. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? I actually have two tangents, but they're related. And can you tell me what's happening on April the 1st? April Fool's Day. April Fool's Day. What also is happening on April Fool's Day? Um, Tiangong 1 is going to crash. Uh, that's the median time for Tiangong 1 to come down. It's also Easter. Ah, yes. So we have two rather interesting things happening at the same time. In the Christian calendar, the date of Easter is determined as the first Sunday after the full moon after the vernal equinox. Of course, for us in the southern hemisphere, it's the autumnal equinox. But anyway, but this year, the date of Easter falls on April the 1st, April, April Fool's Day, which is possibly a little bit disturbing for those of faith. <laughs> uh, but it's also the median time for Tiangong to come down. So predicting when satellites come down is, is a, a bit of a black art, and, but the people have been following the evolution of its orbit quite closely, uh, trying to work out when and where. And the answer uh, when is narrowing down. Uh, the answer where is still, still up there. We probably won't have a good idea until about a day or so before the actual re-entry. So it's quite interesting that its median time to come down is the first. So that, that is something to look out for on the night of Easter Sunday. But speaking of re-entries, humanity stars come down. Great. They came down on the 22nd. <laughs> well, that's a response of many people. But the humanity star was predicted to be visible for nine months. Yep. This will come back to the whole predicting when a satellite comes down can be a bit of a black art. It was predicted to come down after nine months. In fact, it came down after something like 60 days because when they did the modelling of its drag, they neglected to factor in, factor in that it was, in fact, a hollow sphere of carbon fibre and therefore a lot lighter than most um, satellites, and and the effect of the uh, of the atmospheric drag was much much higher than their modelling their their modelling uh, took into account. That's the people we want humanity star. So uh, we've we've lost humanity star earlier than predicted. Well, I was interested to see that one of the compounding factors in trying to predict when a satellite might crash back to Earth is that there's two big factors. One is that when the temperature of the Earth changes, then the atmosphere can swell up and also solar activity can affect the atmosphere as well. So when satellites hit the extreme fringes of the atmosphere, they slow down and crash back to Earth. But that fringe of our atmosphere changes constantly. Yes, uh, it, it pops up and contracts in. It can also be affected by the solar wind, so it can pop up more on the, the down solar wind side of the Earth when there's a, a strong solar wind stream, and there's been ones like that happening recently because of a large coronal pole. And, and also if the satellite's tumbling, 
And we know Tian Dong One is in fact tumbling, and we've got radar images that just came out recently. Wow. And a comforting thought for our listeners is if you're worried about being hit by Tiangong 1 when it crashes to earth, don't worry because the chances of you being hit by a satellite crashing to earth compared with being hit by a bus crossing a road in Sydney is about a million to one. There you go. Well, so we have a number of things to look out for. Mercury's vanished. We won't be seeing it for a little while later, but uh, April is going to be a really good month for watching Mercury in the morning when it finally comes back. But there's one other thing. Now, I talked about April the 1st being both the date of Easter and how we calculated out from the first Sunday after the full moon after the vernal equinox. So what's important about the full moon on the 31st? I don't know, Ian. Tell me. It's a blue moon. It's our second blue moon this year. Oh, wow. So blue moons don't occur all that often. They do occur relatively often but they, uh, compared to some other things we think of as rare. But to have two blue moons occurring in the same year only occurs a handful of times in a century. So it's, this is a, next, when you go out on the 31st, look up at the full moon, Easter Friday, and you'll realise that this is, the, this is a blue moon, the second blue moon that we've had this year, and you're looking at something that's reasonably rare. And most importantly, eat lots of chocolate. If you're out hiding Easter eggs this Easter, uh, hide lots and lots of Easter eggs and uh, tell me where you are and I'll come and get them. <laughs> very yeah. good, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian. Astroblog Musgrave, it's been great speaking with you again. Uh, it's been a pleasure to speak. There's lots of fun things happening and I hope everyone has a chance over the Easter break to go out and look up in the skies and appreciate this, um, the wonderful skies that we have. Excellent. And now for our news update. Our first story is compiled from various sources, the NASA blogs, New Scientist and ABC News. Scientists are putting the finishing touches to the Parker Solar Probe ahead of its mission to fly directly into the sun's atmosphere. After initially testing the spacecraft's functions under hot and cold extremes, engineers have spent the past month slowly cycling the temperatures in the thermal vacuum chamber back and forth between extreme heat and extreme cold, making sure the Parker Solar Probe systems and components operate properly. This thermal cycling is similar to the conditions the spacecraft will experience as it completes 24 close approaches to the Sun over its seven-year mission. The spacecraft will have to survive temperatures as high as 1,371 degrees Celsius, impacts by supersonic particles and powerful radiation as it circles as close as 7 million kilometres to the Sun. Data is sent back here to Earth, 140 million kilometres away, and this will help scientists figure out why the Sun's atmosphere, its corona, is hotter than its surface, a puzzle that's been engaging astrophysicists for quite some time. The spacecraft will be shipped to Cape Canaveral in Florida, ahead of takeoff in July-August. The Parker Solar Probe's launch window 
opens on July 31, 2018. The spacecraft will fly around Venus seven times initially to get itself into orbit around the Sun in December 2024. So why the Rich Purnell manoeuvre? It's to position the spacecraft into its most effective orbit. Just launching it from Earth's gravity well and letting it drop towards the Sun would have been a cheap solution, but not very effective. Now, speaking of cheap and ineffective, last year, on the 25th of September, the Australian government announced its intention to establish an Australian space agency, and they set up a reference group to develop a charter for the Australian Space Agency. The federal government appointed an expert review panel to map out how the agency should operate. And now we are keenly awaiting for its report. The final strategy was scheduled to be submitted in March 2018. And it's the 29th of March now, and all of Australia's heading off on holidays to the beach or to the pub, so I'm not hopeful that the panel will meet the March deadline. Now, since the 25 December announcement last year, I've read every single strategic and policy document, defence white papers, our upcoming satellite utilisation background documents, including the Australian Space Science Dedecal Plan. And you know what's missing from all of them? Vision. Apparently, from my reading of all these space agency-related policies and documents, none of our best and brightest want to talk about Australia having its own launch capabilities or, heaven forbid, actually doing any space exploration. What a bunch of wimps. Now, when our expert review panel releases the Australian Space Agency Strategic Plan, If it does set out how we can have our own launch capabilities and do some actual space exploration, I'll be the first to publish an apology along with my unmitigated delight. In the meantime, I might just order a T-shirt. Some wags have suggested that our nascent space agency be called Australian Research and Space Exploration and developed a logo with the acronym A-R-S-E, or ARS. I just checked the website. Yay, they have my size. See you in two weeks. And remember, you can always leave any comments, suggestions or requests at the Astrophys website, or you can find Astrophys on Facebook and Twitter as well. A-S-T-R-O-P-H-I-Z Radio Wave